Hello. Welcome to my podcast. My name is Andre Silberman, and today I'm going to be speaking about my grandfather, George. Growing up, I had always heard stories about my mother's parents, Elmer Anderson and Mavis Amundsen, and I'd heard a lot about my grandmother, Jewel, Jewel Gordon. That's my dad's mother. But my grandpa, George, passed away really early on in my father's life, and growing up, We had such limited information about him. He was a Jewish man who grew up in Yonkers, New York. And for the longest time in my childhood, I had only heard one story about him. This is that story, as told by my father. So um, what's interesting is that this story is, uh, truthfully, the only story that my dad, uh, when he was young, um, my dad had a great sense of humor. He, um, lots and lots of friends. He was very, very, very personable. Um, lots of people, um, really liked him. Um, and he had a great sense of humor. Um, and, um, when I talked to my, both my brothers, uh, my younger brother remembers this story and, and, but he also remembers it's the only story that he remembered. And my older brother had never even heard the story. So, which is, Interesting. So the story is, is that my dad was a, um, uh, when he was in high school, he ran track. Um, so that was his sport was track. Um, and he was living in a neighborhood that was a quasi mixed neighborhood. Um, him being Jewish and, um, and there were lots of kids of other, um, ethnicities as it were, um, in, in that uh, area. And, one day he was coming home from any um, from school and he had stopped at a bakery um, and he had picked him. So he had bought himself a cream puff and he started eating the cream puff when he was surrounded by a group of guys. I would consider bullies, I guess, who said to him, uh, give me your cream puff. And he sort of had it in his hand and he held it out and he said, uh, you want this cream puff? And they said, yeah, give me the cream puff. And he said, you got it. And he smashed it into one of the guy's faces <laughs> and took off. Uh, and the way he tell, told the story was uh, when he took off in order to get away from these kids, apparently there was like a 12 foot fence um, that he had to get over to, to get to safety. And when he looks at this 12 foot fence, uh, his, his, his line was, for the life of me, I have no idea how I got over that thing but I did apparently. And so, um, uh, yeah, that was literally the only story we ever heard. And I think he, he thought it was a funny story because of the fact that, uh, that, you know, he was bullied, he took a stand and then he got over a fence that he can't, he can't figure out how he got over. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) the funny detail that I always remember as well is, um, that I guess has been passed down through the family is that part of the reason he was running so fast is that his ears were so big <laughs> and uh, they, they caught the wind. And yeah. that's, how, that's how he got going. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that helped him over the fence too. Who knows? Yeah. Well, that's what, it, that's what people used to say is why he won so many races is that his ears <laughs> stuck out. And if there was a tailwind, he was at an, he was at an advantage that other kids didn't have. Other young, young men didn't have. Exactly. During that short clip, you heard practically everything that I've ever heard throughout my 27 years. 
about my grandpa George. That he was personable, funny, people liked him. And this one story of him in the cream puff, sprinting, jumping over a fence that he didn't understand how he could get over, his ears carrying him. And this made me wonder, what was going on at that time period? What might have given rise to that situation? So I asked what my dad thought. Yeah, I, so, so it's really, that was sort of my point of departure, as you know, is uh, kind of knowing that story. And we started talking about what that might, what that might represent or what, what that might have said about the kind of social conditions or social climate um, where he was living. And at, at this point in his life, he was living in Yonkers, New York. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. So what do you, what do you know about, um, or what do you, th- you know, what are your thoughts about what, what it was like to live in Yonkers, New York at that time, um, I suppose, specifically being um, Jewish? You know, what's interesting is that, um, I, you know, you know, when you're young, you don't ask these kinds of questions. Uh, when you get older, you realize there's lots of questions that you would love to have asked your father or your mother uh, once they passed away. Um, so we never really had these conversations. But I think what I what I what I would say is that during that time, uh, there was definitely lots of immigrant groups coming into the states. Um, so uh, he was born in 1907. So add 10 years. So 17. So um, uh, like he was. I mean, when this happened, it was sort of the 1920s, I would say. So there was still lots of immigrant groups coming into this into the country, um, and uh, Jewish people, particularly from Europe, um, had um, there was there was a, a, a good amount of anti-Semitism, which really affected people's ability to get the kinds of jobs that they wanted. There were certain professions that were accepted as being professions that Jewish people could take, but other professions and uh, other professional positions they they were not allowed to take um uh and so i'm thinking that you know w- when new groups came in there was sort of a hierarchy of of uh, the old timers and the new timers um and so i think being jewish there was always um um there were always people that had perspectives about you um that uh, was going to influence how they treated you um and so I think that that's what he was dealing with a lot, um, being Jewish during those, you know, the early 1920s, for sure. When you're young, you don't ask these kinds of questions. When you get older, you realize there's lots of questions you would have loved to have asked your father and mother. That's what we're doing today, digging in, trying to learn more. I guess growing up, I intuitively knew that my father probably knew more about his father's side of the family than maybe I'd heard, and perhaps I hadn't asked the right questions. So I did a bit of digging to find out a little bit more. So I guess the deep dive that I sort of took was to sort of look into um, his family and kind of those that came before him. And so... um, so I guess, what do you know about who his parents were? 
So my my grandfather, I think that first of all, I never met my grandfather because he had passed away. Um, and my guess is is that um, my sense is is that he died at a very young age. And so my grandmother, who was from Romania, um, uh, it sort of my image of my grandmother was a was a woman that had silver hair and a ton of makeup and lots of jewelry. Um, and there's almost sort of we think of Romanian that we think of sort of the um, gypsies and, and, and uh, uh, you know, di different um, ethnics or ethnicities that, uh, that that were in Romania, um, that this is kind of how she dressed. Uh, my other grandmother on my mother's side was a very uh, never wore any makeup, um, didn't dress. She had a, a certain set of dresses that she wore, and that was it. Whereas my grandmother on my father's side was was flamboyant, I should say. Um, and what she did was she was a uh, she was a merchant, uh, not not a merchant, but a a, a, a jeweler, um, jeweler to the extent that she would sell a jewelry um, door to door. So she had a client base that that's what she did um, to to support her family as. Um, to sell jewelry. Um, but she also died when I was uh, um, maybe 10 years old or 11 years old. And her name was Mary, correct? And her, Mary and her name was Mary. That's right. And we grew, we grew up much more with my mother's mother uh, than with Mary. Um, she, we only saw her, we, we actually didn't see her a lot. Um, but those times that we, when she was around, she was a force to be reckoned with. What I found interesting was the way my father remembers Mary. He remembers her job as a door-to-door -door saleswoman of jewelry. He remembers the way she looked, wearing colorful clothing, jewelry, lots of makeup, he says. Something that he attributes, in part, to her Romanian cultural heritage, despite the fact that she immigrated as a, as a very young child. And he remembers the way she felt, a force to be reckoned with. So this made me wonder, what are the factors that led to Mary Hector being the woman that she was to my father? What was her upbringing like? What was her life? So the deep dive continued even further, going taking us all the way back to Plasti, Romania. Yeah, and so I guess what was interesting to me as I was looking at this was, um, once again, there's another kind of man in the family, uh, George's father, who's just a complete mystery in many ways, um, because even as I looked at their their kind of history on Ancestry.com, I could keep on tracing Mary's family back, but um, Roger Silberman, which is what it says on Ancestry.com, and who knows if that's actually his name, um, that it was a full stop when we got to him. Um, so then going further back beyond Mary, which is, which is as far back as I'm going to ask anybody to try to thank or go, um, is her parents um, named Simon and Carolyn is what, is what we found. And so um, I guess I don't assume that you know a ton about them, but do you know, do you have any sense of them, you know, when they, when they immigrated, 
um, where they immigrated from specifically. Um, do you have any kind of idea about that? Not, not a lot, only the, what we talked about. So when you were doing your Ancestry.com searches and we sort of had some conversations, what, what we learned is that they came over in 1900, so right at the turn of the centuries. Um, they, the Carolyn had, I believe, seven children or eight children, uh, of which Mary was one of them. I think they might have had one child since coming here, so they came over with seven children. Um, and um, uh, that's about all that I know, because again, when by the time um, I think he died very at a very, yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that, that's about what I know, because there's, there's not much more that we never talked about them. Sure. Um, and so I guess from, from my research and also from a conversation that you had with your aunt, is that right? Our Aunt Natalie, right, which your is aunt my Natalie. mother's sister, right. Um, you had discovered that uh, Georgia's side of the family came from a place called Plesti, is that right? right? Yeah, P-O-L-S-T-I, Plesti. Plesti, yeah. Romania. Yeah. Plesti, Romania. That's where this journey had led me. Now, what I did know about my great-great-grandparents, Simon, Hector, and Carolyn Weiss, is that they immigrated to the U.S. in 1900. And it made me wonder, what could have been happening in Plesti, Romania, that would have compelled these two people to uproot their whole family, seven children, to move to the U.S.A.? on what I'm sure was a very dangerous journey. I did a bit of research. Here's some things that I found out. In 1866 in Romania, a new constitution was produced. And in that constitution, Romanian citizenship was said to be restricted to only the Christian population. Jews were now foreigners. And anti-Semitism had become part of Romanian identity national identity. I discovered this and so much more in a book called Finding Home in the Footsteps of the Jewish Fuscares by Jill Culliner. I'm going to read a couple of snippets from Jill Culliner's book to give you a little bit more of a sense of what it was like to be a Jew living in Romania at the end of the 1800s. She says, there were protests from the West on March 3rd, 1878, a Congress presided by Bismarck produced the Treaty of Berlin. The independence of Romania was recognized. Its borders set, but the new country was instructed to extend full civil rights to its non-Christian inhabitants. Still inflamed by the new feelings of nationalism, the Romanian government ignored the injunction and introduced measures that would condemn the Jewish population to poverty. The sanitary laws of 1885 and 1893 concerning all aspects of public health declared that Jewish pharmacists could no longer acquire or manage pharmacies. Although a Jew could be engaged as a country physician, the position had to be seated when a Romanian claimed it. Notice the language there, when a Romanian, a real Romanian claimed it. 
Jews could no longer work in psychiatric institutions. They could not be received as free patients in hospitals. To clear areas of their presence, Jewish houses were demolished under sanitary orders. So much was happening beyond the anti-Semitic vitriol within the country. There were tangible laws that were subjecting people from the Jewish population into lives of poverty, starvation, and hardship. And this all gave rise to the Fuscare movement. Fuscare in Yiddish is the word for footgoers, pedestrians, or wayfarers. In the words of Culliner, Fuscares were healthy professional men and women, tradespeople, artisans, workers, and students who trained in long-distance walking, vowed to share their last morsel of bread with one another. She talks about groups that organized in Barlad, Ajud, Iasi, Roman, Bacau, Bucharest, Plesti, amongst so many others. One of the most heartbreaking discoveries for me was learning that Fuscares often um, used an established press to bid farewell to their old homeland. And this is an example of one of the messages that they wrote. Brothers, fellow believers, with heavy hearts, we leave the land of our fathers to wander in foreign places. Need and misery are the driving forces of our desperate project. We have drunk the last bitter drops from the cup of suffering, fought for existence with courage and perseverance, and withstood everything with stoic calm, but in vain. Our strength has deserted us, and we can hold out no longer. Hope and your noble hearts are now our only support. Your generosity is the only possible shelter for our desperate struggle. Brothers, think of the suffering of our wives and children. Think about our grief-stricken parents, and you will not remain indifferent. On our long journey, we will be at the mercy of the weather, hunger, and thirst. Relief can come to us only through your sympathy, our heartfelt thanks, and God's blessing will accompany your support. This is an example from The Foot Wanderers from Roman. What I do know is that Simon Hector and Carolyn Weiss arrived with their seven children, like I said, in 1900, which would have been right at the beginning of the Fuscare movement. What I also know is that Simon Hector died in 1900 in New York. Now, I don't have all the answers. I don't know if it was related to the journey or whether his death came from some other natural cause. But I do know that the experiences of George Silverman's side of the family were constantly informed and dictated by different degrees of anti-Semitism. George, experiencing it in his community, and this perhaps informed the experiences that he had with the cream puff and the bullies, and Simon and Carolyn and their family experiencing constitutional, codified anti-Semitism 
if they're home in Romania. I also note that little acts of resistance are baked into these experiences. George standing up to the bullies, slamming a cream puff in their face, and sprinting away, carried by the wind on his ears. And Simon Hector and Carolyn walking with potentially hundreds of other Jewish Romanians seeking a better life for their families. It makes me really admire Mary Hector, wearing her colorful dresses and her makeup and proudly celebrating this cultural heritage. My father says she was a force to be reckoned with, but how could she not be? Walking across Romania with her family, she was built by that experience. And in part, George was built by her. My father, influenced by George and Jewel. And now here I am discovering all of this for the first time, learning how these forces of strength have impacted me and in some part formed me as well. Um, which was, which was interesting because I even think about growing up and asking you um, where, where our family where your side of the family is from because mom's side of the family is Norwegian through and through Elmer Anderson, Mavis Amundsen. Um, And even having some questions about what, where, where our family came from until we sort of got that confirmation from um, Natalie. So that's, that was also sort of an interesting part of the story for me. um, Kind of making those connections. Right. Um, Well, I also just wanted to say, um, Thank you very much for all of this thinking and all of those answers. Um, and I'm um, really looking forward to sharing more with you about what I learned. And, um, and I appreciate your time and your thought. And um, what a fun project to get to reflect on George and think about him, who's sort of a figure that I uh, feel like I just have not really thought about critically in my life. And so um, thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. And it's been interesting sort of learning with the work that you've been doing at Ancestry.com. There's lots and lots of information that that uh, I just haven't thought about or looked at uh, all these years Um, and sort of getting a sense of what what was happening in Europe at the turn of the century that sort of forced a family of, of, uh, uh, you know, with eight children to come over uh, and start a new life is is um, it's. Particularly, what's given what's going on in the country nowadays is sort of understanding what happens with immigrants yeah. coming into the country. Yeah. So thanks for the work that you've been doing. It's been fun. I'm uh, I'm excited to be learning more. And um, thank you, Dad. All Love right. you a lot. Love you too. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.